0: Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler and joining me today from Cut Through Coaching is my colleague, Mr Tim Perkins.
0: Hello Dan, how are you doing today?
1: Really well, as you know, a great weekend to be English this weekend. Not only last weekend did we beat the Wallabies, but this weekend we gave it to the All Blacks, so it's a good time to be English.
0: So I suggest at this point any Australians or New Zealanders listening, turn off our podcast. Because the smugness is going to continue. It'll it'll seep through. (laughs) (laughs) No, well done, your boys have played very well. Well, Dan, I know you're a big rugby fan, so uh, fair play to you, as they say. As
1: they say. So today, we are um, putting our heads together and tackling some of the questions which have come in from our listening community and and people who are currently on our Habits of Leadership program. Um, Most of them, looking through them already, uh, well, in fact, all of them, I think, are focusing pretty much on the notion, again, of uh, emotional intelligence. And... uh, I think you, Tim, you've got the first question there for us to uh, wrap our heads around.
0: Yeah, so in this first one, we're going to look at how you can accurately determine your own level of self-awareness. And in by way of answering this question, I think what we really do to begin with anyway is to explore what self-awareness actually is about. Um, and in so doing, determine whether it is something we want to actually measure, which you know, there are tools to be able to do so. So self-awareness is an interesting concept um, and intuitively it's, it's you know, it's this idea of knowing yourself well um, and in the research they talk about two aspects of self-awareness. The one that we're probably more intuitively aware of is this concept of internal self-awareness which is essentially defined by how we perceive uh, the relationship between our actions and our ideals and the correlation there um very importantly though and perhaps one where we can focus a bit on here to begin with is this idea of external self-awareness which is really the ability to clearly see how other people perceive you your actions and your behaviors which from a leadership perspective is enormously important um in order for people to develop this sense of external self-awareness, they really need to know themselves reasonably well, but they have to be brave and they have to, you know, we as leaders need to elicit feedback from the people that we work with. Um, And it's only through getting that sort of feedback which, you know, presents problems in itself, uh, getting that feedback because – Sometimes when you have sort of floated to the top of the tree or worked very diligently to get towards the top of the tree, um, the people around you stop telling you what you really need to hear. So an external self-awareness really requires that the feedback that you're getting from the people around you is authentic and valid and that the people around you feel safe to give that um, where they're not feeling at all compromised by sharing that sort of feedback with you. There's interesting research talking about the idea that the further people get up the chain, um, the less externally self-aware they are, Um, and one of the obvious reasons for that is what I've just alluded to there, is that people stop giving them the feedback that they need for fear of any ramifications. But then there's also a sense that um, sometimes as people get further up the tree, they start to feel that... They know, you know, most of the answers and that there's less need to look around. Um, Obviously, that's not a great leadership approach and that a much more self-aware leader would be constantly looking to improve themselves and to get that information from external sources but very importantly getting it from internal sources as well, getting it from the people that are actually working with them who in many senses know them best but more particularly because they're the people that a good leader is trying to bring the best out of in order for the school, the organisation, whatever the organisation happens to be, to really thrive. So, yeah, when we're looking at self-awareness, we're really looking at two aspects. One is the internal self-awareness and the second one is the external self-awareness. There was actually a really great article about um, developing, cultivating self-awareness in the Harvard Business Review last year and we'll put that in the show notes, Dad, and uh, that'll be a nice one for people to have a look at there. Um, As I said at the outset, um, there are all sorts of free online tools that people can have a look at um, to start to assess their own level um, of self-awareness. One of the things that you'll read about in in any research that you do around self-awareness is the idea of changing the questions that you might ask both to yourself and to others around the idea of not asking the question why things have happened so much this is particularly in relation to internal self-awareness because often when we ask the why question um, we tend to start to feel sense of guilt uh, and a bit of self-flagellation of why things didn't work out properly why the project failed why etc and we're encouraged to ask what questions so For example, what are the situations that make me feel terrible and what do they have in common? Or what did I do in this failed project that I could have done differently? And so as soon as we change from the why to the what, we're looking at ways of really improving uh, and really becoming more aware than the why which is generally framed in the negative. Um, And, you know, in relation to the idea of wanting to build our self-awareness, You know, it's suggested that leaders who focus on building both internal and external self-awareness, who seek honest feedback from, you know, they talk about in the research, they talk about loving critics sometimes, so people who uh, have your best interests at heart. Uh, And then for leaders who ask what instead of why, we can learn to see ourselves much more clearly um, and we can start to reap the rewards that increased self-knowledge delivers. Mm.
1: I think um, something you um, alluded to there in terms of you know finding out from others, that's um, a core part of a lot of the work we'll do when we're working, you know, when we're coaching one to one, whether it's through a really simple kind of feedback survey or, or a more in depth three hundred and sixty um, type approach. What we're really looking for is not only to recognise um, where there's you know. Um, correlation where, where where both the person we're working with and their team can recognize strengths and perhaps areas to develop but maybe even more importantly we're looking for those blind spots we're looking for those things that the leader or the person we're working with hasn't picked up on but everyone else is seeing and it can be really interesting to uh, see who 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 is willing to go to that space and, and engage with those things it's not uncommon when people get feedback which is kind of anything less than perhaps what they were hoping for to go through you know something of a grief a grief cycle and i guess being um aware that that is is how we're responding to the feedback is the first step and and recognizing that you know we might feel a bit shocked, we might feel a bit angry, we might be in denial about it but then recognizing that that's probably in some ways quite natural but then being able to work to the point where we are able to accept it and then perhaps act on it. So the um, social psychologist uh, David Dunning who is one half of the uh, the researchers who came up with the Dunning Kruger effect, which is where people ha- tend to have um, loftier assessments of their cognitive ability, you know, or, or their smarts than than perhaps they do have. He um is a has a quote attributed to him that says, you know, the path to self awareness is through others, and we certainly. Um, gonna you know, try and, and walk that walk a fair bit in, in, in the work that we do. So whether it's um, an online survey that you're going to take yourself, obviously uh, th- this might be something of an irony that you, you need a high level of self-awareness to be able to assess your level of self-awareness. Um, but certainly asking other people... Um, simple questions what's one thing i could do differently what's one thing i am um, you know I'm, I'm doing well um through to a, as i say a full-blown 360 that would certainly be um the most powerful way to determine your levels of self-awareness
0: that's right Dan. and when you're, you're talking about the 360 or some listeners will be familiar with the jahari window which is a, a similar style um a strengths-based sort of style of of 360 you're talking about the the external self-awareness there, and and as you alluded to a minute ago, there, Dan, you know, leaders who see themselves as their employees do, um, their employees tend to have a better relationship with them, feel more satisfied with them, and see them as more effective in general. And those three areas would be, you know, for any leader something that they would and, and probably need to aspire towards. Mm. Um, and there's also, you know, that article that I referred to from the Harvard Business Review. They talk about the idea of uh, employees with and, and leaders with internal self-awareness, uh, a strong sense of internal self-awareness. You know, that's generally associated with higher job and relationship relationship satisfaction, um, personal and social control, and general happiness. And interestingly, and probably very importantly, it's it's negatively correlated to anxiety, stress, and depression. So the more uh, internally self-aware we are, probably the, the mentally, the more mentally healthy uh, we are as well. Okay. So our second question um, is around how we build empathy within a team of teachers that we supervise. Dan, what are your thoughts? Well,
1: we actually um, run um, several different kinds of workshops around helping teams build get to know each other for want of a better word um helping them understand what makes each other tick and we've done this in various settings from uh nrl football teams through to uh teachers which is obviously where this this questions come from in particular and one one such approach is it's a fairly well-known approach it's called the triple h or um you can add another one in as well if you want a four h is where you essentially ask people to um share with the group who their hero is. What's a highlight that they've had from their life? Uh, what's a hurdle that they've overcome? And the fourth one, which might be optional, if you want, um, if you get through all of those um, is to share a hope, what's a hope that they have um, for their future. And what's quite interesting is if you go through um, those depending on on the group you're working with, and and uh, um, the 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 climate should we say within within that organization or that that staff room or that boardroom or the change room is that asking people who their hero is that's a fairly low stakes entry into this conversation most people you give it a bit of time but most people can talk about someone who has inspired them whether it's the you know, the, the go to people who, who you know people rattle off on Facebook posts or whatever, or it might be someone far more personal, it might be someone that nobody else in the room knows. Um, but it's a fairly low stakes way in. Same with the highlight, you know, what's a highlight that you've had, but what tends to happen is that even though it's quite easy to talk about highlights, it tends to be a more of a p- more personal nature, which again, just peels back the layer Uh, so to speak. And if that's been handled well, if it's been facilitated well, then by the time you get to the the hurdles, you know, the challenges that people have um, faced, you've built a really nice climate or an environment where people, if I'm being honest, are surprisingly open when we've we've done this. And people tend to go to some quite vulnerable um, places. And we talk a lot about psychological safety and you know, you, most of you I'm sure will have heard of um, the author Brene Brown who talks about, you know, the power of being, um, the power that's in vulnerability in, in, in amongst teams and, and leaders. And people being able to share that, it absolutely shines a different light on, on the members of the team. And, and it's not uncommon for us to, at this point, really reflect on it. it it's almost impossible to work the same way once people have shared their hurdles because once you just have that different level of understanding of what people are dealing with and what they've been through it's almost I guess unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath it's almost impossible to continue working the same way and as I said the optional fourth one if there's enough emotional energy left in the room to to do this is is share the hopes for the future and and that if you can imagine, sort of like the arc of the day, the arc of the conversation, it really does. Where you can imagine that perhaps people have, I don't know, maybe the arc is on on a dip. I guess when people are talking about challenges they face, that that hopes can really lift people out of the uh, out of that dip and and you know to a more um, positive trajectory, perhaps. But as I said, in a, in our experience, actually the the hopes one. it it, it often isn't needed because the group itself has actually lifted um, as a collective in response to hearing the other people's challenges so it is it's an interesting activity it needs to be handled with a certain degree of sensitivity you certainly need to be aware of um, what your strategies are should people disclose things which are you know surprisingly open whether that you have um you know, a team of psychs or uh, at least a counselor or just so, uh, even a buddy system where people can check in. Um, but the idea that, yeah, th- you really can only build empathy by doing your best to walk in your teammate's shoes. And the the, the, the heroes, highlights and hurdles, optional hopes, um, activity is certainly a good way to do that.
0: So, Dan, let me play devil's advocate here. Yeah. Um, we're in a let's say we're in a school um staff working together everyone's flat out we you know we work in multiple schools every week we've been teachers in schools we know how busy schools are how could it be that a school environment for example could possibly create the time and why would they value the need to get together and talk about these triple h's or quadruple h's heroes, highlights, hurdles, hopes. What's the what's the likely benefit of that? Mm. I think,
1: um, you know, if you're interested in getting the best out of your people, then we should be understanding that we can't do that unless we know what makes people tick. We can't possibly support people if we don't know, you know, their stories. Um we can certainly put things in place and we can put performance reviews in place and we can have processes that people go through. And of course, there are some people who that's fine for and they work just, you know, they can come in, they 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 check in, they do their day's work, they check out and, and we're all sweet. But the argument for finding time um, to do this is, is if you don't find time to do this, then you're going to have to find some time to pick up all the pieces when teams become dysfunctional and when teams start falling apart and when teams um there are you know misunderstandings or you know you're going to have to make time for those difficult conversations you're going to have to make time to you know scrap ideas and start again so for me um I mean and obviously you know um not everyone subscribes um to these philosophies that's why (laughs) that's why we have so much work on our books um, is because um, people don't subscribe to these things and then typically ends up there's a problem people end up becoming people they don't want to be acting in ways they don't want to act and they wonder why and a lot of the time is they've valued the process and productivity over the people and um, my invitation for people is to consider you don't get processes or productivity right if you're not looking after your people and looking after your people starts with having empathy for them and and understanding them and creating a space where people can you know open up with each other and then we're not talking about you know gratuitous tears and you know oversharing yeah we're not talking about the most you know we're not talking about sob stories for the sake of sob stories we're talking about What's who's your hero? What's a highlight, and what's the hurdle you've overcome? And just see where that goes. Mm. And my best, my guess is you're going to be in a very different place after you've had that conversation than the place you were when you initiated it.
0: It's interesting. Without um, going on about this one too much, I mean, building empathy within a team is is such an important and effective way to bring the best out of those teams. I mean, as as you've mentioned before, Dan, we work with quite a lot of the NRL teams. And one of the things we often hear from the best performing teams is that the coaches show a genuine interest in the personal lives and development of the players. Um, this has got nothing to do with their footballing abilities. This has got nothing to do with how they perform on the field. But in order to get the best out of both of those areas, um, they've shown a real empathy Um, for those individual players they're the sort who turn up with flowers when a player's you know wife has a child for example or if there's a difficulty in the family they're the ones who are on the phone Uh, if someone's having drug and alcohol issues for example you know they're the ones who support them and if it's working with the best coaches in the best environments and with the best of players then maybe there's something to it.
1: Okay, our next question comes from a principal. She's actually on our um, Habits of Leadership program as we speak, and she's talking um, about, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg scenario here. She's asking whether staff, it's like a staff room becomes toxic because of dissonant leadership. So dissonant leadership is um, a a concept spoken about in Daniel Goleman's book, uh, Primal Leadership, in which um, the leader does not exhibit any emotional intelligence or if they do they use it to really um, drive you know, drive the, the organization through through a culture of fear. Um, so does the staff become toxic because of dissonant leadership or has the dissonant leadership come about because of the toxic staff room like because that's the way it's always been? And we're well aware you know um, she says here she's, she understands theres probably no right or wrong answer but just curious as to what our thoughts are on the matter so Tim what are your thoughts on that matter?
0: Yeah it is an interesting chicken or egg you know what's what's come first the the dissonant leadership or the toxic uh, staff environment um, I'd say Dan and I are probably very much of the opinion that um, it doesn't really matter um, which came first and but more importantly you know using some of the characteristics that we've just talked about earlier in relation to developing empathy, developing self-awareness, that it's about taking that opportunity uh, once it's realised that things aren't humming for the group, um, about how to get to know each other better, how to get to know ourselves better and how to move forward from there and perhaps see this as an opportunity for a new start because obviously what's going on currently is not working within an environment.
1: Mm. i think just to draw um the other end of the bow if that's even the right phrase in in his book primary leadership they talk about resonant leadership so resonant leadership is where it's based on emotional intelligence and tim used that word you know humming along with a lot of musical analogy here so when everything's just humming along and everyone's in tune and and, and working together it's until you know i agree with you tim when you know often when we we go into places and we hear all the stories about everything that's gone wrong and people unload their baggage and you know that's cathartic for them and there's probably obviously there is uh value in in that and we're we're interested in what has happened but we're not overly focused on that we're, we're interested in saying okay well that's happened and you know what you might not have been responsible for that but what you are responsible for is how you respond now so given as you you know you've you've notice that there's something happening recognizing that you know every day is an opportunity to essentially hit reset and and try again and it could be you know that it, it requires a, a real series of of what we might frame as difficult conversations or what I might frame as adult conversations um, in and around, well, what has led to this in the way I'm thinking back, Tim, to what you were talking about at the start, not necessarily why has this happened, but what are some of the contributing factors that have led to this? And what might we do differently from from this point on? And so whether it's, um, you know, if if you do find yourself in this situation, I'd heartily recommend um, two books, one, Primal leadership mentioned it a few times now, but the second one, um, and we'll put links in the show notes to these, um, would be the Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson, and she actually in that book has several case studies of um, teams or organizations where there has been, you know, for want of a better word, a toxic culture, and how it's usually down to a lack of psychological safety, and then furthermore, how to how to rebuild um, from that. So. Um, as I said, what comes first, probably don't know. Um, but in terms of what happens next, well, that's down to us or down to you and and determining to, to make a decision as a leader that we're going to address it and then doing that in the most pragmatic or practical or and maybe an also um, respectful way also because people have got very valid reasons for feeling the way they feel. We might not agree with them, You know, we we might not even understand their point of view, but then having some conversations and recognising that whatever it is, that person believes that and and to them it's, it's a very valid reason. So we need to be mindful of that in order to move on from it.
0: And what we know for sure won't happen next is that that toxic culture will not improve unless some process is put in place to deliberately change it. And, you know, as Dan, as you've referred to there with Amy Edmondson, you know, she talks a lot about... The idea of developing empathy within the group um, and ensuring that people are genuinely listened to um, often what causes a toxic environment is a is a real breakdown in communication and a lot of that is often centered around the idea that people don't feel that they are listened to that they don't have the autonomy in their environments um, and really spending the time you know as as bushfire seasons taking off here in australia at the moment Backburning is such an essential component to this and really resetting, as, as you said a minute ago, Dan, um, that idea of of addressing the issue and listening to all of the stakeholders because the toxic environment will not change of its own accord.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, our last question is from Liz. And Liz says um, this, what's a positive way to let your staff know that they need to meet deadlines and that the help that they're giving them is not feasible in every instance or sustainable. She says she's well aware that they're in a negative attitudinal space and she's desperate to avoid a complete shutdown. Tim.
0: So I feel like uh, today's questions are all intrinsically linked to each other Um even though the, the wording is quite different, I think the idea of developing psychological safety within that group is, is absolutely essential in relation to um, encouraging people uh, to meet their professional responsibilities. It, it, it seems absurd that um, a leader would be having to challenge their staff and having difficulties with their staff around meeting their professional responsibilities, but it's not at all uncommon we worked with a school recently where people were challenging their need to write school reports you know and these are highly experienced teachers who are saying i just don't want to do it anymore well that's kind of a non-negotiable and that's one that needs to be explored and obviously the difficult conversations to touch on something else that we've already touched on today they're the conversations that need to happen at times here and I'm sure, Dan, in relation to this one, you've got something to say around coaching as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I, sh- I should have said also that Liz m- mentioned that she'd been promoted from within the ranks. So that's always an interesting uh, dynamic when you have, you know, last week or last month, last year, you were one of them, so to speak, and now um, it, you're you're the boss, you're leading them. And you're right, Tim. I mean, you know, coaching um, is certainly a powerful way to develop a lot of the things that we've been speaking about over the last uh, 30 minutes or so you know building empathy and creating psychologically safe spaces you know coaching um, here is is all about just sitting with the person you're working with sitting with the coachee and allowing them that space to explore the what of things. You know, in coaching, we often don't ask why questions. We often ask a lot of what. We might ask a lot of how questions, but very often uh, we'll really try and avoid. You know, so why aren't you doing this? What, you know, why? Why do? Why is that important, or why is that not important? And in asking the what and the how questions, we can allow the coachee to really sort of just articulate things that perhaps they haven't done before. And the point about this is, is that a coaching conversation, for the, the, I guess the biggest difference between a coaching conversation and just a, a chat is that the person who is doing the coaching is really intentional in the way in which they want to keep the conversation flowing. So it's a, so usually, usually, uh, a solution focused, and usually um, we're adhering to some framework, you know, some theory, which is, ho- you know, for want of a better word, kind of like a roadmap or a fr- you know a framework for this conversation. So by allowing the coachy in different phases of the conversation to maybe just unload, you know, just really just say everything that's on their mind. And then the coach is sort of somewhat strategically picking through what they think has got the most value to focus in on for the next 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it might be. But then at the end of the coaching conversation, the, the real crux of it is that the, the coach has moved it so the to a point where the person they're working with has been able to articulate something that they can actually do and they can actually move on. And if done really well, um, the coach will be making a time where that person checks in to, to share what they've done, or in some cases the coach, in, in the way we do it, the coach will check in to say, you know, okay, just checking in, see how you're going. And just that the, the language that we're using, you know, in, in the question, Liz used the word negative attitudes and, and, you know, avoiding complete shutdown. So you'll notice the language I used there in terms of checking in rather than checking up. And we're really being quite deliberate in the language that we use. And we're we're essentially, you know, we're not holding people to account. Back in um, an earlier podcast episode where I was chatting with uh, Michael Bungay-Stanya, who's the author of The Coaching Habit, we had quite a uh, conversation, we labored the point that really it's not our job to hold people to account because that's just giving us more to do. Really people, you know, assuming we're working with educated professional adults, they can hold themselves to account. And in fact, they want to hold themselves to account to the things that they've said they're going to do. And so a coaching conversation is really, really useful if um, you want to deploy that. If you don't, you know, know much about coaching, then I'd highly recommend Michael's book, The Coaching Habit, which I'll um, make sure we put a a link in the show notes to. Um, It just gives... You don't need a certificate, accreditation. It just He just talks about how to have these conversations in 10 minutes or less. You know, we've spoken already today about how time poor we are. We don't have time to sit down and work through everything. Well, Michael makes the case that you can do this in 10 minutes or less. We don't need to write everything up. It doesn't have to be part of a formal coaching um, a, approach or a mentor program. It can just be the way you do conversations. So I'd really recommend that. The other thing I'd recommend... Um, and I've mentioned this a few times uh, in past episodes, is something called the accountability dial from um, an author called Jonathan Raymond. And he talks a lot about, and I, I used this uh, phrase before, I don't think it's his phrase, I think, I'm not sure if it's my phrase, I don't know, but um, how to have adult conversations. So when you notice something that needs to be picked up on, well, mention that you've noticed it. Um, and, and he talks about it, just it's the mention. And we use words like I noticed rather than some level of judgment onto it. Um, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to pick up these things when they present as p- potential problems rather than dealing with them when they're absolutely a problem. And one of the you know, arguments I often make is that you would probably end up having a lot less difficult conversations if we just had more adult conversations. So it's uh, it's definitely an interesting dynamic if you've been promoted to within the ranks. It's hard to find where that boundary is. It's hard to, you know, not be in some ways um, overly understanding of uh, maybe your team's position because maybe, you know, you were feeling just like that a year ago and now, you know, as I say, you're the boss, you're passing down the, the information for, that's come from above you. But those two things, the accountability dial and the coaching habit, uh, check out the links in the show notes and I reckon they'll be able to Uh, give you a good start point.
0: Dan, can I just ask you in relation to that one briefly, you mentioned the term mentoring there as well. In a mentoring relationship, uh, it's generally perceived that the mentor is more experienced, more capable um, than the mentee that they're they're mentoring. Mm. In a coaching relationship, that's a different dynamic. Can you just touch on briefly, so for example, Liz, she may not have any experience of coaching, Mm. And she's, all, she's she's pointed out here that it's unsustainable to continue to feel like she's got to talk to people about this stuff all the time herself. Mm. Does she need to be the coach? Mm. And briefly, what's the difference between coaching and mentoring there and who else can do the coaching?
1: Yeah. So in, so in her question, she talks about, you know, all the help she's giving them is not feasible or sustainable. And that is sort of speaks to one of our throwaway lines is that a lot of leaders are just really busy doing other people's work, work that they should already have been doing. So that's the first point, you know, whose work is keeping you busy? Whose work is keeping you from doing the work you really want to do? That's number one. The second thing, yeah, as you said, the difference between coaching uh, and mentoring. Um, Well, I mean, and there's any number of definitions. So someone listening might take, you know, uh, take a slightly different tack on here. But as you say, the the idea of of a mentor is typically, if if you went into a new organisation and you were given a mentor and that mentor was even newer than you were, or that mentor, um, you know, had less experience than you in a particular field, you would find that unusual. A coach, however doesn't require a position you know hierarchical position doesn't necessarily require more experience in the field depending on what model of coaching that they're, they're, they're taking so in, a, in the model of coaching that we use you know we take, take a very much of what we call a facilitative well not what we call what the, real, what the theory calls a facilitative approach which is where we're just holding the space for people and allowing them to explore um, you know the issues around themselves it's not uh, the coaching we do is is you know we'll often we may well move to what they might call a dialogic approach as well where we might share some ideas and in some cases you know what we've even said no <laughs> you just need to stop doing that and do this but typically we'll certainly be erring more towards the facilitative um uh end of the spectrum and what that means of course is that we're able to work with many people in domains that we haven't had first-hand experience of. For example, um, you know, the, this a, a national or, or regional sales division, right? We've, I've never had that, but we can work with people. Um, elite athletes, you know, although you look like an elite athlete, Tim, you know, you and I, we've, we've not... I'm glad you recognise that, Tim. <laughs> we haven't had too much experience playing in front of 50,000 people. Not yet. Uh, not yet, no. Carol Dweck tells me not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but we can... But we can we, what we do have is expertise and experience in uh, frameworks and, and conversations that allow them to, to get there. So in this case, if Liz doesn't have that um, that knowledge of the frameworks, then as I said, I think Michael's book, The Coaching Habit, would be a good place to start. Um, and um, yeah, just maybe see if it's something that um, will pay dividends down the track.
0: Yes, all right. Well, that brings us to a close of this episode and all I can say to you, Dan, is this Saturday coming, (laughs) England versus South Africa in the World Cup rugby final. Bring it on. (laughs) We'll talk about it in a future episode. I've got a feeling I know which way it's going to (laughs) go.
1: I hope you're right. But if you um, enjoyed this episode, if you found it worthwhile, then please share this episode um, with your network. Wherever you're listening to the podcast, please like it, perhaps leave a comment, rate it. It all makes uh, quite a difference to us here. It makes us uh, feel at least on some level, it's worthwhile. You might also be interested in submitting a question for an upcoming episode. You might also be interested in finding out more about our Habits of Leadership program. The registrations for the 2020 cohort have just gone live. So if you're based in Sydney, or in fact, if you're based anywhere around the world and want to be part of our online program, then all you need to do to do that to get involved with the podcast is just head over to habitsofleadership.com and you'll find all the requisite information there. But until next time, take care, take it easy.